From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official health care provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. You're listening to the 100th episode of the official podcast of the Gators, and what better way to celebrate the century mark than with a preview of one of the great traditions in college football, Florida-Georgia. The latest iteration of this rivalry comes with a very straightforward storyline, with the Gators as huge underdogs to the third-ranked Bulldogs. But strange things often happen in Jacksonville, and we'll discuss some of those as well as this year's matchup with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, sophomore safety Chauncey Gardner, and wide receivers coach Kerry Dixon II. But first, the bye week came at a good time for the Gators to try and get their season back on the right track. As Jim McElwain and his staff worked to shore up areas of concern, we spoke to Scott Carter and Chris Harry about some of the ones that needed the most attention. You know, it's some of the same stuff we've seen. Lack of a passing game, penalties, just execution uh, during critical points. I think those are things that they they looked at closely. And, you know, sometimes uh, those kind of off weeks, it does give a team a chance to kind of revisit some things they don't necessarily have time to during the course of the regular season, you know, with the game coming up. And then we won't know how they turn out, obviously, until Saturday against Georgia. But I don't think there was any kind of overhaul. I mean, this is a team. It is what it is at this point. If they had executed on some key situations, obviously, in the games against LSU and Texas A&M, they could have won those games. They didn't. They end up losing. So, you know, are those uh, little tweaks and kind of just attention to details? Is that going to be enough to make a difference against Georgia? We'll see. One of the biggest things that's been affecting the Gators this year has obviously been the health situation. The bye week came at a good time, undoubtedly. So what do we know about who will play this week or who's more likely to play than they would have been a week ago? It's really hurt the team, obviously, Adam, relative to the offense to not have your best receiver, Tyree Cleveland, on the field the last two games. Uh, made a cameo appearance very few people saw uh, against Texas A&M, but he really wasn't able to do much, if anything at all, with that high ankle sprain. Obviously, uh, an open date gave them a another week for that to heal. And you look at the discrepancy as far as uh, receiving. I mean, Tyree Cleveland, is he's their best receiver. He only has 15 catches this year, but he's averaged almost 22 yards a catch. He has almost three times the yards receiving as, as Brandon Powell, who's their leading receiver, who has 16 receptions. But he gives them the, the deep ball element, and that's something that uh, you know Georgia has been susceptible to. Uh, Georgia's an outstanding run defense. Uh, if you can make some hay against them, you may be able to do it with the with the intermediate and deep passing game, which happens to be something Florida hasn't done very well and certainly hasn't done very well when uh, Tyree Cleveland's not in the game. So if he can get back, if Kadarius Toney can, can get back with that sore shoulder, uh, obviously those are two outstanding playmakers that they really need for a, a game against Georgia, which, trivia question, Adam, the last yes. time the Bulldogs were ranked this high going into the Florida-Georgia game. 1982, Heisman Trophy winning year for Herschel Walker. Wow, okay. It was a bad day for the Gators in Jacksonville. They lost 44 nothing. Mm. Yeah, it's a funny story about that game, actually. I was okay. not born, but that game was the last time that my mom went to a Florida-Georgia game. My dad took her, 
And because it was 44-0, she said, I'm never coming back. And true to form, she has not returned to Jacksonville since that day. Wow. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, So, okay, so this is obviously Georgia is rolling right now. There's no way to deny that. Florida is not rolling. But when you're looking for confidence, if you're the Gators, can you maybe take the most from history and just the number of times that Georgia has had really bad showings in Jacksonville when they're expected to dominate? Yeah, uh, Josh Hamlin, uh, you know, he made comments earlier in the week about the, uh, the Florida's recent success against uh, Georgia and how these players, the veteran players on this Florida team, have not lost to the Bulldogs. And, of course, if you look at the history, the Gators have won 21 of the last 27 in the series. So there's very few players on the team who have lost to Georgia, and they're taking that attitude into the game like, hey, we, we're not going to lose to Georgia. We beat these guys. I mean, you kind of have to do that. I mean, they're, what, a 14-point underdog in this game, which is very rare that Florida has come into this game as that big of an underdog, really, in the last 30 years. You know, people are expecting Georgia to win this game on Saturday. So, you know, Florida's pulling out all of its motivational ploys it can. Uh, it's recent history, and really, it's last quarter century against Georgia they're going to use that to their advantage how much does that make a difference on Saturday it really all depends on how much the Gators believe it and how you know if they can carry some of that uh, positive energy out on the field and make plays because uh, they're definitely a deeper team than Florida right now they've got a lot of things working in their favor and uh, you know not a lot of people are going to give Florida a chance in this one you can certainly talk about history but you don't want to rely on history that's certainly that's not a recipe for success I mean they're Coaches are going to do their diligence. Players are going to do their diligence. They'll have a plan to go in there. But like anything else, they're going to have to play, I don't want to say near-perfect game, but it's it's going to have to be a game where they don't do anything to hurt themselves and probably a game where they force some turnovers, give their offense some decent field position. And it's a lot to ask, though, because, I mean, the way Georgia runs that offense, I mean, you're talking about a team that's rushing for 282.9 yards per game, and I think that number is 322 in SEC play. Uh, with those two tailbacks they got back there. They're going to have to be really solid in, in their run fits and at the same time not not sell out totally because, you know, they got their rookie quarterback there in Jake Fromm who's certainly capable of uh, of beating them with the deep ball because, this, you know, this Florida secondary has shown it, it will give up some big plays, certainly did in the Texas A&M game uh, a couple weeks ago. So, you know, Florida has is going to have to be on point defensively and, you know, the, an offense that right now is ranked 102nd in the country at 127 teams is going to have to make some plays. McElwain said that earlier in the week at his press conference. They're going to have to make some plays downfield to help out the offense. Just a little note on the Georgia offense. Coming off a 696-yard performance against Missouri, mm. second most in school history. And that just kind of speaks to this is a big, probably the biggest challenge the Florida defense has faced all year. When we talk about Florida-Georgia, we talk about it as a game because it is such a unique event, the Florida-Georgia game. I'm curious for you guys, in all your years watching and covering this rivalry and in this series, which one in particular stands out? What is your your ultimate Florida-Georgia memory? I think for me it goes back to probably when I was in school here in 1993. It was over in Jacksonville, uh, the last game in this rivalry in the old Gator Bowl. And I just remember a downpour uh, before the game. I mean, you're talking about one of these classic Florida thunderstorms, uh, you know, waves of water coming down the old stairs. The field was flooded. And, uh, you know, the Gators, they used Eric Rett uh, right down to the end. He scores late. 
and they went 33-26. And uh, if I remember correctly, Chris, that was their first of four consecutive championships starting in 93 through 96 with uh, Eric Red, and then led into Danny Warfel and company. And, uh, you know, that's the game that sticks out to me the most, though, is just, you know, you had the weather, you had late drama, and I still remember Eric, Eric Red just – muddiest player I've probably ever seen in this rivalry. I actually covered that game and I got out of my car and stepped into a mud pit in a parking in, a, in one of those awful parking lots off in a grass lot somewhere. But to answer your question, Adam, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and say uh I covered the team in that in that ninety four, ninety five period where they had to play the games on campus. Mm-hmm. And the ninety four game was just a, an emasculation of the Bulldogs here. Memorable, memorable touchdown. I bet you can find it on YouTube touchdown interception returned by Darren Hambrick late in the game. I'm quoting a score off the top of my head. It's 54 to 17. Sound about 50, right. 52, 17, And then you turn it around and you go to Athens the next year in Florida was, I think number two or number three in the country yeah. unbeaten and going there. And I believe the score was 52 to 14 up there. And what I remember is that Spurrier had the third team in, and threw a touchdown late in the game. They're just booing the hell out of him, booing the hell out of him. And we're down on the field. That's back when the riders could be on the field. And sure enough, you know, we huddle around Spurs. He comes walking off and Todd Blackledge was the sideline reporter. And he went up and he, and he said, and his first question to Steve Spurrier after this amazing win up in Georgia between the hedges was something about, was that last touchdown really that necessary? He goes, well, you know what? At Todd, he goes on the way here. We had, Lawson Holland, he's our special teams and our tight ends coach. And uh, he was going through the media guy. And, he, you know, we found it. No one had ever scored 50 points against the Bulldogs here between the hedges. So we thought we'd come in here and do a pretty nice ball yard, too. And uh, that's why the guy was so much fun to cover. And obviously he went 11-1 and against Georgia. I, I saw one loss in, co- in my uh, in my 10 years as a newspaper beat writer covering the, the Florida-Georgia game. And um, that was the 1997 game. Historic rivalry, actually, and that's when the whole thing, when he was here, obviously, where they, they really flipped everything and made it a competitive rivalry again. Yeah, 1997 was the only game Spurrier ever lost to Georgia. Is that correct? That's right. And it was a big, Robert Edwards, four touchdowns, I think. Heinz Ward was on that team. Hell of a Georgia team that was. I'm going to use you guys here for a second to help settle a little family score, because it always comes up every time Florida-Georgia comes around. So I'm going to go back to 95. Since you brought it up, Chris, in 95... I'm bringing my dad into this podcast for the second time. It, it's I can't help it. Lifelong Gator, it happens. Uh, the 95 game was also the same day as game six of the World Series when the Braves ah. played the Indians, okay? So my dad had a choice to make. He had the option of being on the sidelines in Athens for the you know a rare, possibly last time ever, Florida-Georgia playing in Athens, or he could have gone to game six of the World Series. He ended up choosing Florida-Georgia, and Game 6 was the clinching game for the Braves, which remains the only major championship the city of Atlanta has ever won. So, I would ask you guys, what would you have done in that situation, keeping in mind that he does not regret it to this day, even though the Braves won the World Series and they have not won it since, he still says if he had to do it over again knowing that, he would still go to Florida-Georgia in Athens because of how unique an opportunity that was. Well, Scott's a Braves fan. I would have gone to the Braves. Cause Thank you, Scott. Thank you for I'm being sane. I'm a lifelong Braves fan myself, <laughs> and I still remember watching that on TV, but if I'd had the opportunity to be there, I would have been there. I can't stand the Braves, so. Well, okay, no, so I'll I'll flip it. This isn't about the Braves. This is more about Florida, Georgia versus something else. Let's say the Washington Nationals are in that game, Chris. 
What I, would I you do? I would the game because they would have lost. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll answer your question. I'll err on the side and say that I, I, I don't think you could have made a bad decision that day. You know, because there was something. If he was a huge Gator fan, he's going to live his life having seen the the one time in his lifetime that Florida went into between the hedges and beat the hell out of the Bulldogs. So I'm sure he can live with that. And he, he probably went home. If I recall, that was a noon game. He had plenty of time to get where he needed to be and, <laughs> and enjoy the uh, the Braves beating the Indians that night. So if there's nothing else, your dad had a wonderful, wonderful Saturday afternoon. It was it was a very good Saturday. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and wrapping up here, it's going to be a great Sunday come Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, not likely because the Falcons will be in it for me, but more importantly, because Justin Timberlake, my and Chris's favorite artist, will be performing at the Super Bowl halftime show, as was announced this week. And that inspires our PAT this week. This will inevitably become my favorite Super Bowl halftime show. But for each of you, what is your favorite Super Bowl halftime show? Well, I've already seen him once. You were there. I I forgot. I was there for the wardrobe malfunction. Scott? I I know where he's going. Well, you know, I could go a lot of places. I certainly like the Janet Jackson moment. That was a classic moment <laughs> in American TV history and one that I uh, still have on DVD that I watch regularly. <laughs> but also, I probably would go with the Rolling Stones in Detroit a few years ago, only because I'm a huge Stones fan. And uh, when you get the Stones to play the Super Bowl, I mean, the game is is big enough itself. But then you get a, the Rolling Stones, you add that to the mix and – I still remember uh, the anticipation around that. And, but, you know, Adam, I got to say, I thought last year, Lady Gaga, if I mm. was going to rank them one to however many they've been, I'm putting her number one. And I watched the documentary recently about her that led up to that exact moment when she went on stage at the Super Bowl. And to watch all the uh, pain she was in, like dealing with her injuries and the time that she went into, you know, putting that together. I mean, that was an amazing documentary if you haven't seen it. And then obviously that night, I just remember seeing the performance and I was pretty wowed by it. And, uh, you know, that's one that I think I would rate number one just from entertainment value, for historical perspective, for my own uh, personal satisfaction. Pardon the pun. I'm going with the Stones. She didn't really jump off the roof, you know, just say no. I was in uh, New Orleans in January of 2002, the 2001 season. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was the first Super Bowl after 9-11. And what they did to honor the 9-11 victims while U2 played was one of the truly uh, greatest things I've ever seen live. And I even took a moment to look around in the press box from there as he was, uh, as Bono was dancing about. And they had the, the stage was rigged in just a phenomenal way. But then they, they unfurled that banner down and rolled up the names of all 3,000 plus of the people that died on September 11th. And they're playing. I can't even describe because, I, I, like I said, I took a moment and looked around and everyone in the press box was absolutely mesmerized. Most of the time, like we're hacking out, trying to get ahead because you got deadline situation and what have you. But when he, he was playing, the streets have no name. And that thing came down. It was it was just something that you literally could not take your eyes off of. And I've seen obviously you two in concert a couple other times, but that moment right there just uh, is something that I'll never forget. And I, I still talk to people about it sometimes. Yeah, I remember actually going back recently and watching that. That was uh, that was something else. And and just to go back to a moment ago, Lady Gaga did jump off the roof, but it was previously recorded. And then spliced with the live part of her falling from the ceiling. So I, I don't, I don't want Chris taking anything away from Lady Gaga, especially because Scott just heaped a lot of praise on her. I know, but she didn't really jump off. Oh, 
She, well, uh, she jumped like five. Feet. I would just highly recommend the uh, documentary about her. It's, it's five foot two, is what? Isn't that correct on Netflix? Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, you know, obviously I know some of her music. I didn't know a lot of her backstory and uh, her, what she puts into her performances. But I came away a, a pretty big fan. Do you follow her on Twitter? You know, I do not. I'm one of. I think she has the most Twitter followers in value, right? Yes, she got like 27 million. And believe it or not, I am not. I am not one of them. I don't follow a lot of celebrities on Twitter except uh, Adam Schick and Chris. <laughs> I, I think I may have just shamed Scott into go following Lady Gaga. It's possible. And and yeah, while you do that, I'll go ahead and shame all of our listeners into following you guys on Twitter at Gators Scott at Gators Chris to check on everything leading up to Florida, Georgia before Jacksonville and, of course, on Saturday throughout the day. So check them out, and uh, we'll be back next week to talk about it. Guys, thank you so much as always. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, thanks, Adam. It's a sign of how young a unit is when sophomores are considered veterans, and that's precisely the case with Florida's secondary. And while experience is in short supply – Having so much youth has allowed the Gators to cross-train multiple players at different positions. One of those versatile pieces is Chauncey Gardner, who turned heads as a freshman corner, but now holds court as a sophomore safety. We sat down with the Coco native and began our chat by discussing what his unit worked on most during the bye week. Our focus was just getting our young guys prepped to play different positions. Because all the season they've been playing, you know, a, a set position. But with a lot of injuries, you know what I'm saying, we have to, like, get them focused. Like, you can also play corner. You can also play safety. You can also play nickel. So we just, like I said, getting them mentally focused on playing multiple positions, getting ready for a dog fight on a Saturday. When speaking of young guys changing positions, you're a young guy recently changed positions. So you can kind of speak from experience to that, can't you? Yeah, I can. I mean, it's just a mental thing. Like, you can't really focus on what you can't do. You got to really, what you can do at another position, just bring it to that position, just do the same thing. Because it's really the same thing when you play offense and defense. What have been the toughest parts for you about changing positions, especially after your first year having to, to make that switch? Uh, It wasn't hard. It's just I had to get my mind right because, I, like I said, I've been all playing corner. But playing safety is easier once you learn the playbook, learn the calls, uh, and start focusing and communicating with everybody else on the team and making audibles. Like, it, it gets easier. It's just something that I was willing to put my mind to, and that's what I did. Getting back to now, when you're going through a, a tough stretch like this, how do you keep your spirits up? And what, what's the key to staying in, in the right mindset? I just think about the positive. I don't really think about negatives. Yeah, everybody, everybody already talking about our negatives, so there's no need for me to talk about it. So, I mean... I just keep our guys motivated. Like, we got to keep playing football. It's, you got to think about it. It's plenty more games left in this season. It's easier for us to go 8-3. and three. We could have been, easily been 0-6 this year. Just like anybody could easily been 0-6. But you can't think about it. Like I tell them, you got to go out there and play football. That's what you signed up for. You ain't focused on Twitter talkers or <laughs> opponents. You know what I'm saying? You got to sure. go out there and play football. When you've got the week off like you did last week, do you stay totally locked in or is it is it important mentally to maybe take a step back from football? Oh, it's not hard to take a step back from football because that's something that we do. But for us to get a break, it's just for us to get our bodies back. That's all it was. Get your body back and get ready to play a good game on Saturday. If we can take things back for you a little bit, can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? Um, Coco, Florida. My mom, my dad, two little brothers. Good family, good household. My mom always there. Dad was always there. Always on time, everything. Didn't have a negative factor in my life. Because I always was focused on football. I've been playing football since I was three years old. So wow. it was like, it's something I do. And my little brothers look up to me. My littlest brother, 
Boogie gonna be probably most likely gonna be better than me huh. at football because he's the youngest and like he experienced like more stuff. I could teach him more stuff. You know what I'm saying? My middle brother Brandon, the smartest one. You no, know, he gonna be a doctor already. He already wow. he skipped eighth grade. Really? Yeah, from seventh grade straight to uh, ninth grade, huh. and you know already got scholarship offers. Uh, I think it was Harvard and some schools in California, like school wise. But other than that, a good household. Got a dog named Sky. She's the only bad one in the group. <laughs> other than that, I'm good. Household's good. My mom's living good. Dad builds the biggest boats in Florida. Worked for Sea Ray for 15 years. Wow. So, like, you need a yacht bill, just call Sea Ray and talk to my dad. He'll get it built for you. <laughs> so, are you, were you into boats at all? Because that's uh, that's what your your dad did? I can't swim, so I'm not getting on no boat. Really? But, I mean, I can swim in five, four feet. <laughs> but you put me in deeper water, yeah, it's going to be it's struggles. But, I mean, I have things for both. I look at them every now and then, but I'm not too big on them. Now, you said you started playing football when you were three years old. What level of football are you competing in when you're three years old? Well, my dad, we playing in the living room on the, on the carpet. And then I hit four years old. He asked me, did I want to play flag football? Because I, I got the pictures at the house. I was in flag football, but, like, I really didn't play because I really didn't know what was going on. really couldn't, like, <laughs> operate like that. But I can say I really started playing football, football when I was about six years old, seven years old. I actually started off with tackle. Most people play flag first. I started off with tackle, and ever since then, I just kept it pushing. So once you got into football, what position did you gravitate to? Were you always on defense, or were you an offensive guy? Surprisingly, I was always an offensive player. Hmm. I always played running back and quarterback. And in high school, I played a lot of offensive quarterback, running and receiver and running back. And I started playing DB officially my junior year in high school. I really didn't know what to do. So then I got better at it, and then I got offers in it. I went to the opening and then became one of the best DBs. And now, playing it now, I hate offense now. You hate offense. I, mean. <laughs> I hate offense now ever since I switched over. But now, I mean, defense has been stitched in my head, and mm-hmm. that's what I've been going with. Was it hard to switch over? Did, I mean, was it your choice, or did someone maybe say this could be a better path for, for you to make it far in football? It was actually because growing up, I also I watched a lot of Joe Hayden, you know, mm. and he started off as an offensive guy. And that's why I was an offensive guy. You know, when he switched to DB, I switched to DB. Mm. And that's when I was like, dang, all right. But when he switched to DB, he was in college. I was still at elementary school. But I didn't really – I always said I'm going to play defensive back and never played until my 11th grade year. I played defense in high school, but it wasn't like mm. a defensive back. It was just like a rover position where I just do anything I want. Why Joe Hayden? How did Joe Hayden become a, a guy that, that you looked up to? I came to my first spring game and Tebow them. College game day was here, I think. And I came and I saw him play. And I, he really didn't, like, jump out to me. It's just because that's the first person I spoke to. He signed my wallet. And then I asked what position he played. And ever since then, that was my favorite DB. Huh. And I just motivate my game and do everything he do, pretty much. So you're watching Joe Hayden. You're playing football. What else goes on in Cocoa, Florida, when you're growing up? Uh, a lot of doubt. A lot of guys, like, they have the talent but don't make it. That's, like, typical for anybody that's coming from, you know, I can speak for anybody that's coming from Florida. It's a lot of talent, but a lot of people don't make it. But it's also a motivation standpoint. A lot of guys I played with that was real good. 11 out of the 15 people that I grew up with that played Little League in high school with are all at D1 colleges, all playing the same high school. Huh. So, like, we all just made sure we got out and just made our moms proud. Because we still – we're in a big group message now. We sent – one of them's at Boston College, one's at Temple, one's at Auburn, one's at Ole Miss, mm. 
One's at Bama. One's at a community college. Three of them, at, I think, are at West Florida. But three, the three that I know at West Florida, they're not my boys' boys, but we put them in the crew messages because we're all from the same area. Mm-hmm. You know? But we always keep in contact and stuff like that and just make sure everybody's good and, and swap gear a lot when we go home together. So you obviously grew up with a lot of really good football players, and, and it was a big part of what you guys did. When recruiting picked up, what was important to you? What, what were you really focused on, and why did Florida stand out? My dream school, this may sound bad, my dream school was Texas. Really? But that's, yeah, because I always, like, because of Vince Young. Mm-hmm. And that's why. But when they never, they never offered me, so I, I never, like, was mad about it. But when I got my first couple offers from Miami and Florida, my uncle, uh, Early Brown, was my coach from Miami. I got my first offer going against BP at the Miami camp, at our Golden camp. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And then I came up and did camp at uh, Florida with Muschamp, got an offer. I went against Siante Lewis, he'll tell you. He went at it the whole day. <laughs> and then when I really was going with Florida is when my little brother got surgery on the back of his head. He had a brain stem, and I would never want to leave him. So I told him I'm going to stay as close as possible to the house. And I'm only two hours away from home, so if he need me, he calls me, you know. And my other little brother, Marco, you know, he just got uh, – in a car accident, you know. Oh, wow. Can't walk right now, but he's getting back to that that point. Like I said, I'm close to home, so if anybody ever needs me, I'm there, and it's just something I, uh, you know, always had in my mind. I love Florida now. I love this since I committed when I was a 10th grader, and I stick with them regardless of my goods and bads and their goods and bads, and I just support the university and just love being here. So you're in your second season now, and you came on really strong late in your freshman year. What were some of the toughest lessons that you learned over the course of your first season before you had that breakout at the end? Sitting. I never had, like, my whole life I always started and played and just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting was something that was hard for me. But it's part of the business. It's what we do. And in my eyes, all the best DBs had to wait patiently your turn. And I feel like I'm going to be one of the best coming out of here. And I want to be the best. I'm going to keep working at it and just keep playing football. You told a story before about coming across the bridge in Knoxville last year and realizing at that moment how intense the competition in the SEC was because of the fans and everything that you saw. Can you talk about that experience and how that affected you? Ever since that Tennessee loss is when I really took the SEC competition seriously. I always took it seriously, but like after that loss in Tennessee last year, I knew like it was real, you know, coming out of the tunnel. But I mean, I wasn't doubt then personally with it but i just know like every time i play sec game it's gonna get my all it's really with any game but but sec game i'm like held to the metal mm-hmm. uh pin back and just go because that's where you make your money at and that's where you put a smile on people's face when you play best is in sec games and that's what i focus on doing i know people say don't play for the crowd but i play for myself but in the back of my mind i got a little pats i do this for fans and family and everybody else that's watching when you look at your development so far, what teammates do you feel like have had the biggest impact on you, whether it's guys that have already left or guys that are currently there? Uh, the biggest impact, Siante Lewis. I go against tight ends every day and running backs. And I've, ever since I've been here, you always kept me like focused. Don't focus on outsiders and just do you. What you were doing when you was at high school and bring it here and just keep doing you. Don't worry. Don't change nothing up for nobody. You talked earlier about young guys having to change positions and cross-train on the defense. Have you sort of become one of the veterans, and what freshmen have you taken under your wing to try and help along? Really, all the freshmen, core, really, not just defensive backs, just any freshman that need help. 
that and know that we can win games and just, like I told you, you guys go out there and play ball. I got you. When you have some time away from football, we, we know you don't want to go swimming, but other than that, what is it that, that you like to do with your time? Listen to music, and that's about it, and lay down and just throw the ball in there. I don't really do nothing too much because like, I'm a social guy, but like I don't like – I get aggravated quick, <laughs> so I just like relax, listen to music, and just – I'll probably put a game every once in a while, but other than that, I'm just laying down listening to music. What's on that playlist most of the time? My favorite rappers are Shy Glizzy, because he's from D.C. He's from the area where T is from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of rappers I listen to. But the main ones are Shy Glizzy, Kodak Black, and I'd probably say Future, because all my other rappers are like, they up there, but you know how that goes. Good rappers, <laughs> yeah. I got you. Wrapping up with some more football for you, especially talking Florida, Georgia. Uh, this is your second Florida, Georgia game, and it's so unique from other games with the neutral site in Jacksonville, with the 50-50 crowd. What do you remember about playing in that game last year, and how does it differ from a player's perspective from any other week? How does it differ? It's a championship game of mine. This is an SEC championship fit back. This is basically keep your head on straight. Because you know, like, they're going to be coming with, all, with their all, we're coming with ours, and we just got to keep playing football and don't focus on the outside and just do what we got to do to win this game. What have you seen from the Bulldogs so far on tape that it stands out to you? Uh, they're putting up points. That's about it. They're putting up a lot of points against the teams that, you know, we struggle with. But we can keep that down to the middle. It's not hard for us to play defense, you know, because that's something that – that's what this team is built on is playing a great defense and letting the offense strike when it's needed. But – like I said, just, they're putting up a lot of points, and that's something I feel like we can limit and uh, keep it on hold for, for probably three hours, four hours of the game. The running game has been so big for Georgia, and they have so many different looks. How, how do you slow that down with all the options that they have in the backfield? Play football. That's all it is, just playing football. Don't focus on, like I said, don't focus on the accolades and attributes and stuff they can do and just go out there and, and play football. Final question for you, Chauncey. Georgia is number three in the country and you guys are a huge underdog in this game. So I'm curious how that affects your mindset as you prepare for Saturday. Like I said, they're number three in the country, so be it. They haven't won anything besides football games. They're doing the same thing we're doing. Like I said, they easily can be 0-7 like we can be 0-6. It's, and they easily can be undefeated like we can be undefeated. But we're just going to see Saturday at 3.30 on CBS. Right there and have fun. Well, you told everybody where to watch the games. You did that part of my job for me. And uh, thank you for everything else and telling us a little bit about your story. Yes, sir. Thank you. Injuries have plagued the Gators at almost every position this season, but you could argue the wide receivers have been the most adversely affected. With game changers Tyree Cleveland and Kadarius Toney missing time, there is both concern about their return and opportunity for others to make their mark. Jeff Cardozo caught up with wide receivers coach Kerry Dixon II to talk about his guys, but began by discussing another bye week activity for the coaches, recruiting. Yeah, it was good to get out, man, see some of the coaches in the great state of Florida, uh, visit with some principals and some things like that of that nature. And it was really, really good to just get out and be out on the road. And that's always a neat part of this, too, because you guys, you talk about it when you have your guys in your room, but it's it's forming these relationships early. It's getting on guys, getting the trust that, that they have, so then maybe inevitably come to, to play in a program like the University of Florida. Oh, yeah, you know, it's good when they see your face, you know, at this point. You know, we can't talk to those guys when we go to the schools. 
But they see you come through, they see the logo, and they feel the love. You know, a lot of the times these guys know who you're coming to see, so uh, it's really good for us and the future of the program. Yeah, and I know the love is still there for, for this program inside, and you know, I'm around you guys in the locker room, so you see how much you want this. And you look at the, the last couple of games, and obviously they didn't go your way, but it's a play here and there. It's, it's one point and two points for, from being 5-0 and and this being a, a huge game. So I'm sure that that's what you express to these guys in the bye week. Yeah, that's definitely what we express. They believe and they buy into what we're teaching. Hopefully you're going to see that out there, a guy's giving effort and going above and beyond to go win. And you probably don't have to tell them that either. Like They come to Florida. They know what this rivalry is all about. They know what the SEC is all about. So when you go through these bye weeks and you're looking at some of the things that you've got to try to improve on, what are some of those things? Well, one of the things that we try to improve on is the execution of the passing game as a whole, you know, from the protection aspect, the progression of the reads, uh, getting open on the outside, just the execution and fundamentals in our routes and technique. Try to hone in and sharpen those skills. And once we do that, this piece of the puzzle will definitely come. Yeah, no doubt. And you, know, you guys uh, hopefully will get a, a couple of guys back and Tyree and Kadarius Tony, two guys that you know, I'm sure Felipe's missed. I'm sure this offense is missed. So two real big playmakers. Yeah, two playmakers, explosive guys, uh, guys that are very special with the ball in their hands. And um, it's great to have them back as well as the guys that we already have. So I'm super excited. You know, you and I trust each other, and I'm going to ask you some cool things. You'll be back and forth, but there's got to be that trust within players too. And I know Felipe probably has a trust in, in Cleveland because it seems like that was the guy you know that he was very successful with. So getting him back too, how big is that? Uh, that's going to be huge for Felipe. You know, he really relies on that guy. They worked a lot in the off season, so there's some timing things there, and um, it'll be good for him. Uh, to get 17 back as well because I think he was formulating trust there also. You know, and uh, just take what's given to you, and he'll be just fine. You know this matchup now. You've been a, a part of it for a couple of years, and, you know, you hear the stories about what Kirby's done to his guys, and, and no, nobody could raise their hand that they ever beat Florida. So I'm sure you guys are probably using the same approach. Hey, Georgia doesn't beat Florida. Is that the way uh, you've been going at it? Uh, it's kind of the approach. These guys already understand that. I think that's a pressure that comes from – outside guys who've played here before in the past you know they understand that that's the standard that's been set and it's our job to maintain that standard well um the standard is uh, defense so far for georgia this year they've been really good it's it's a very veteran group back there so i think that's going to put a lot of onus on your guys to, to do some things right yeah those guys are very fundamentally sound both up front and on the back end. So we just have to do a great job of being fundamentally sound in what we do, uh, making coverage adjustments, you know, seeing what we see and believe in our eyes, trust what you see, and go with it. I know you guys don't completely revamp a playbook or different things, but as you watch now the film and you get a couple of weeks to, to prepare for this, do you try to come up with some different things to, uh, to, to show them a few wrinkles? There's always some nuances. You know, some things that we'll do differently, but try to keep it as consistent as possible so that the guys feel comfortable with it and they can play fast. That's huge for us. You know, the, the progress from the last time we talked to you, I think we know that Kadarius is a playmaker, and he probably reminds you of yourself back in the day is the, the moves <laughs> and uh, everything else. But, you know, some of these younger guys too, and, and Josh and, and, and Freddie and, and some of these other guys and the tight ends all now starting to, to become playmakers. Yeah, man, I wish I was born with the hips that Kadarius <laughs> has, yeah. <laughs> but um, those guys have invested a lot of time in honing their craft. And I use that phrase a lot because I think it just matches what they do. 
You know, they always try to sharpen their technique. They're always trying to find advantages, what they can do to make themselves better. And uh, I think that's what's helped them progress. Coach, as always, uh, you're sharp as well. So uh, thank you. Best of luck. I'm sure you guys are antsy to get back out there. Yes, indeed. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. We're always looking for ways to improve Gator Tales and encourage your feedback by emailing gatorspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting at gatorspodcast, or messaging Gator Tales Podcast on Facebook. Florida and Georgia will kick things off on the banks of the St. Johns River Saturday at 3.30 on CBS and the Gator IMG Sports Network. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Jacksonville.